0: Alright, so this afternoon we are carrying on in our scripture reading. This morning we looked at Luke 15, and that's where we're going again this afternoon. So for our reading we'll read, beginning at verse 11, we'll read the the pericope of the, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's known, or the lost son. Um, we'll read 11 to 32. Our text, will be looking at the older son, so we'll be seeing that from verse 25 to the end of 32. Let's read then Luke 15, we'll begin at verse 11. This is Jesus, of course, in the context we see that. And Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they began to be merry. Now we're going to look at our text, beginning at verse 25. We see the older son. So here to the end of 32. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. So far, God's Word. Do keep your Bibles open, just like this morning, if you can. You'll find that helpful, I think. So this morning, our sermon uh, title, I guess you could say, was A Father Restores His Son. For this afternoon, the title is A Father Invites His Son. This morning, if you were here, if not, I'd give a, a brief summary. We, we had the opportunity to look at the first half of this parable. We saw the younger son, and we put it in that little phrase that the younger son, he is, first he's sick of home, and then he gets sick, and then he gets homesick, and then he comes home. That's, that's how it goes. We saw that younger son's repentance. We saw the call on all of our own lives as well. But we also saw the reception of the Father, the arms that were open, welcoming home his unworthy son, claiming him as his own. And we are so often like that younger son, and like him, we too need to come to Jesus. But we do so knowing that when we do, he will not turn us away. But if we recall the context, Jesus is giving this third parable about lost things to two different groups. And so we met both groups in, in verse 1 and 2 of our chapter, Luke 15 1 and 2. We so said the first group was those tax collectors and sinners, that younger son who we looked at this morning. Now, the second group, they're the scribes and the Pharisees. That's is the older son. In the first half of the parable, Jesus, he's explained his compassion towards that first group. Now, in the second half of this parable, Jesus, he gives a warning, but also an invitation to the second group, to the scribes and the Pharisees, to the older son, to you and to me. Now, remember that this parable, it's given to address the complaining of this second group. Because Jesus' willingness to associate, to eat with, even to befriend sinners was shocking to them. I think we can rightly ask the question, why would Jesus' reception of sinners have frustrated them so much? Why couldn't they just shrug it off and maybe say, hmm, you know, Jesus, he's, he's a little odd or a little strange. Why do they have to complain so much? And the short answer, we could say, well, it's because they didn't see Jesus and the forgiveness that he offered as something that they needed. They didn't see Jesus as their savior. In this parable, if the younger son, we want to put one category summarizing him, we could say maybe he's, he's self-indulgence. But if we look at this older son, we'll see that he is self-righteousness. And so we have two Different groups They've got two very different problems, we could say. But yet, as we'll see, there's only one solution for both of them. Now, maybe your temptation in reading the second half of this parable is to be frustrated with that older son. And admittedly, I, it's kind of hard not to be, right? What's wrong with this guy? But we need to pause again here. If we saw a reflection of ourselves in that younger son this morning, I assure you that you will also see a similar reflection of yourself in the older. I came across one commentator. He put it like this. and I'd like you to listen carefully because I think it's a good summary. He says, The prodigal son's elder brother is one of the most spiritually unattractive people in the entire Bible. He's stingy, self-pitying, Resentful, proud, bitter, unrepentant, unforgiving, and unwilling to show grace to other sinners. The only thing he knew how to celebrate was his own accomplishments. In other words, the commentator says, he was a lot like the Pharisees and probably a lot more like us than we usually dare to admit. That's a big list. There's a lot of things in there, but a lot more like us than we usually dare to admit. And on first reading, that's a bit of an ouch. It kind of stings a little bit, doesn't it? But we want to be real from the start. We often act like both of these sons, but there is an answer for both of them. So I want to enter into the scene in, in three points. You have your Bible open. We'll see in verse 25 to the first half of verse 28. We're going to see the son's discovery. And in our second point, in the second half of verse 28 through to verse 30, we're going to see the son's complaints. And then in the final two verses, in our third point, we'll see verses 31 to 32, the father's invitation. So let's start then with the older son's discovery. If we turn to verse 25, we there enter into the parable. And so it says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And we might think, well, that at first glance seems kind of commendable, right? Right? Here we see this older son. He's exactly where we would expect to find a a faithful child who's interested in the family's well-being. Somebody's got to run the farm. Somebody's got to keep the land up, right? He's out in the field. And so he's come to the end of his work day. He approaches his family home. So far, so good. In verse 26, it says, Hearing the sounds of music and dancing, the older brother, he asks a fairly understandable question. He summons a servant and he asks, what do these things mean? Maybe they didn't have parties at their house very often. He needs an explanation. Why? What's going on? Verse 27, we get the answer. The servant, he quickly fills him in on the situation. He says, your brother has come and because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fattened calf. And you can... Picture him processing the information, right? The train of events, it's really not that complicated. There's really two main things here. First, the younger brother had returned. And second, because he's returned, the father is now hosting a party to celebrate. We know that the party, it's already begun. As he approached, he could hear the music. We could even hear the dancing, whatever that sounded like. I don't know what Jewish dancing sounded like. It's already started. The older son, he he now has a choice. Would he join in his father's joy? The father's reception of bringing the son back. Verse 28, it gives us our answer. We see his heart response, as well as the action that it moves him to. It says, but he was angry. And in the Greek, the word for anger here, it has a bit of a deeper connotation. It's an anger that, that boils, like water on a pot. He, he's, he's enraged. He's, he can't really look the other way. And in his anger, he refuses to enter the house. And it's helpful if we just pause for a second. And we see now, here's the context. Not everything is well, obviously. But there's reason to search our own hearts As well. Because there are many different kinds of prodigal sons and daughters. And when they do return home, how does your heart bend towards them? Give it one example maybe the the genuine confession of a couple who are pregnant outside of marriage. What's your honest gut reaction to them? If by God's grace they turn and they come and they confess, are you also ready to receive them? Do you care to hear their testimony of the story of God's incredible mercy towards them? Or does their past actions leave you annoyed that they have found grace? We could give countless examples. That's just one. We need to be very careful here, church. When heaven rejoices over a returned son or daughter, how can the saints in the church do anything less? We know we are all grace needers. If we are in Christ, we have received grace, every single one of us. So do you live prepared to show that same grace, grace even to those whose lives are, might have deeper sin scars than your own? It's an important question. As a church, we are those whose lives are marked by grace. We should be the first ones to get this. The first to recognize that God can and that He does work incredible change in the broken. He brings them, as Scripture says it, from death to life. We should be the first To see our own need of grace. And seeing ourselves and knowing yourself to marvel that that even you could receive it. And so I, I say a warning. If you grumble even ever so slightly, you need to see some of that older brother within yourself. And you need to fight against it. You need to make it your prayer that God would soften your heart towards the returned prodigals. That you'd be able to show them genuine grace. That you would rejoice in their rejoicing. I ask you, if the church is not a safe place for repentant sinners, then where else would you have them go? If Christ welcomes them home with an embrace, restoration and celebration, how will you receive them? Now notice in our text that in response to this older son's unwarranted anger, something quite incredible happens. Well, that son, he refuses to come in. He is just livid. The father, once again, it's the father. Remember, we're looking at Christ here. In his love, he condescends to come out and to hear the complaints of his son. So in our second point, we're going to look at the complaints of this older son. What is he so upset about? It's helpful if we take a moment to assess the situation. As things were, the son, he's standing outside and he is seething with rage. His refusal to come in and share in the family's celebrations, it was entirely culturally unacceptable. Now that's true of Jesus' day, but if this was happening in our day, That would be equally true. Maybe it's a little earthy to say it, but it's almost like this older son, he's he's out on the the front. There's a party in the house, and he's in the front yard, and everybody can see him, and he's having this temper tantrum just on the front yard. It it looks terrible. It's not a good thing. Well, his father, he leaves his guests, and he goes out, and he goes to speak with his son. And he does so because he loves his son. And here we see again a glimpse into the heart of heaven. What does he do? The father goes out and he pleads with that son. And if we step out of the parable for just a moment, we don't want to miss the bigger picture. By delivering this parable, Jesus is like this father. He's got these two groups in front of him. And even as he speaks of this older son, he's reaching out to those scribes and those Pharisees. And he's entreating them to come in to him to put aside their anger and their complaints and to enter into the joy of their Savior. It's a beautiful picture. We recognize that the father, he has not shut the door. It's not shut at all. The older son, he's not banned from the celebrations. The father goes out and pleads that he would come in. He's the only one who's standing in the way and he does so because in his anger, his pride and self-righteousness, they've just clouded all his reason he's not thinking clearly in such a state this older son he has no desire to hear his father's pleading at this point there's no room for reasoning with him he's just it's like he's deaf to it right he's got his headphones on his rage headphones And so in verse 29, it's like the veil is pulled back. The son, he's going to vent out these long, stored up frustrations. And we might think that his anger is only in response to the return of his brother. But his words reveal that there's a lot more going on here. This older son, he does not simply hate his brother, which I think if we look at the situation, we can... We kind of empathize with him a little bit in that. The younger brother certainly hadn't done them any favors by liquidating the family property. That would have made life a little difficult. But it goes deeper than that. And it's completely unfair. But this son, he also hates his father. Now if there was ever a love from son to his father, it seems that it had been gone for a long, long time. You can hear the anger in his voice. There, there's no respectful tones here, no respectful titles. He says, low, or I think the ESV puts it, look, which just with that extra K gives it a bit more of a K, just power in saying it, but low or look. This isn't a young child coming to their father and saying, but dad, that's not fair. This is full Disrespect. In the Greek, this is an emphatic word. It means you could put an exclamation mark after it. And the older son is saying, Look here. But what does he want his father to see? Well, he's got a laundry list of accusations, but it's very telling that he doesn't start with his anger towards his brother. He starts with his grievances towards his father. It says, Lo! These many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time. You never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Where is the finger pointing? Well, first to himself. Look at me. He despises his father. He's revealing his heart. All those days that he was out working in the field, how does he view the time spent? He says, I served you. What he's really saying is, look, I slaved for you. I did everything that you wanted me to do. And so here we see a bit of that deeper poison that's inside. But he goes on. He feels that he's earned something. He feels that his father owes him something. Hasn't he met the demands of his father at every single point? Shouldn't his actions earn him anything? Doesn't he at least deserve a go? Where is his party? Look at me. Am I not the perfect son? What more did you want from me? And yet behind those words, there's a hatred that's festering. But he's got it all wrong. In the complaints of this son towards his father, it's like Jesus is removing the blindfold. And showing the Pharisees and the scribes the state of their own hearts. But it's not just them, because too often it can be the state of our own hearts as well. When we think of the Pharisees, yes, they were annoyed that sinners were being shown compassion. And that's very true. But their deeper problem was that for all their thoughts of obedience, their heart toward God was as hard as concrete. You could say they were just going through the motions. They weren't obeying God because they loved Him, but because they felt obligated. And they thought that it gave them some merit before God. You see, they started by looking at themselves. That was their starting point. Instead of starting from the character and the grace of God that then shapes our lives. If we want to say this was just drop dead, heart dead, no heart at all obedience. This is an obedience of going through the motion that always stinks before God. There's nothing to it. And so they were caught in their self-righteousness. And Jesus, through the words of this older son, he was showing the emptiness of such a life, of such self-righteousness the emptiness of their service before the Lord that really earned them nothing. In their self-righteousness, they failed to see that they needed God's grace just as much as the sinners who were coming to Jesus and who were finding it and rejoicing in the grace that they were receiving. In the same way, not one of us can come to Christ and make a demand based on what we have done for Him. And sure, we're not as, as bold as this older son, right? We don't, we don't say it in those words. Jesus, He's making a point. And as Jesus, He gets to pick the words that He wants to use. And so He makes it very clearly. But we're much more subtle than that. And we often can trick ourselves. It can look like a lot of things... But do you ever find yourself bargaining with God? And I don't mean, if I do that, then you give me that. But it can be more subtle even, you know how you think, you know, this has been a good day. I've done pretty well today. And then you have that little, therefore, God must be happy with me. You ever have that? But church, that isn't how this works. God, he's not a debtor to anyone. We are those who stand only by the grace offered freely to us through Christ. God, he owes us nothing at all. And yet we see that the elder brother, he's not done yet. Don't worry, he hasn't forgotten about his younger brother. Excuse me a moment. you look in verse 30, the older son he begins to play what I would call the comparison game. He wants to pull out the, the scales. He wants to set his younger brother on the one side. He wants to put himself on the other. Now we're going to see his hatred for his younger brother expressed. You can look at the words. This is what he says But as soon as this son of yours came, you see the contempt, it's very clear. He has not even the smallest hint of love for his brother. He won't even recognize that this miserable, tattered son who has been welcomed into the house is any relation of his. He wants nothing to do with it. He says, this son of yours. You see the depth of his hatred for his brother. He's disgusted that his father could show love for such a worm. And so the bro- older brother, he begins to just heap up his con- this condemnation. He wants his father to look at him and say, how could, how could you even do that? You see how sick that guy is? He, he hates him so much. And he hates everything that his father has done in showing compassion in receiving that younger brother home. It's like he's asking, where's the justice here, Dad? You welcome that guy home as a son after everything that he's done? He deserves nothing. Nothing at all. And he goes on. The son of yours, he says, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. We need to stop there. Because where on earth did the older son get that information? Remember, he hasn't even gone inside. We don't see this detail anywhere prior to the older son's just saying it as if it's a fact earlier in the parable verse 13 where it says that the younger son he wasted his possessions with prodigal living that means he blew through his money it doesn't tell us anything about harlots it's not on the younger son's lips it's not on the servant's lips who had come to meet him it's not on the lips of the father and yet here the older son he declares it as if it's just a fact The older son, in his hatred, he imputes sins that he had no right to claim upon his brother. In his hatred, he begins to imagine what his brother could have done. So in his desire, in this comparison game, to raise himself up, Dad, look at me, he he has no qualms at all about lying, just to, to get his brother down, just that little bit more. But I ask you, does God... Look at us like that. Does God use the comparison game? No, there's never a place to justify our lack of perfection by throwing a weaker believer under ourselves just to shore ourselves up a little bit more, right? Certainly not to lie, to make the gap look greater. There's no room in the Christian's heart for thoughts that You know, at least I'm better than so-and-so, right? But do we do this? It's a searching question. Do we do this? Do you play the comparison game? And I think if we're honest, we would all have to say that we do to a degree. It's our, our human nature. And maybe it breaks your heart when you find yourself doing that. And it should. We need to fight against that. Because if our standard of righteousness is just to be better than the other people around us, we've got it entirely wrong. Don't get me wrong, Satan loves that. If he could get you to say that, you know what, that, that just be better than that, that's that's great. Satan loves it when men and women begin to stop longing for genuine holiness. And to settle into just a, a comfortable, misguided complacency—good yeah, enough—but the standard that God expects is not to be at least better than someone else, and preferably somebody that we, you know, we can easily surpass. No, we're called to God's standard: perfect obedience, holiness, Christlikeness. It's a holiness that we can only have if Christ gives us his own, we need to break that comparison game. Now this is likely part of what frustrated the Pharisees so much about Jesus. When they look at Jesus, they saw a level of righteousness that they could never come close to. We could say Jesus made their attempts at righteousness look pathetic and they hated for him for it so much that they actually wanted to kill him for it. Do you see this? The older brother, he, he despised his younger brother for his lack of righteousness. And yet at the same time, he hates his father for his abundance of righteousness. And it's so easy to do. If we measure our own righteousness as grounds for God's favor we will inevitably find ourselves pridefully despising those who are weaker. You know, well, I'm not that guy. Or we'll be jealously hating those who are stronger. It is not to be this way. Paul's cry of wretched man that I am comes to mind. What are we to do? How can we fight that temptation the temptation to use other people as God's measuring rod. Well, we, we see that we so desperately need a doctor of the soul. And this is where the grace comes in. This is not where the parable ends. We have in Jesus such a physician. And so in our third and final point, we see the incredible conclusion of Father's Invitation. In this morning's sermon, we're moved to see that no matter how broken, Jesus wants sinners to come to him. That his arms are wide open. That this is heaven's way. And now having seen the brokenness of both of these sons, who wants to deny it, we are once more moved to see God's unending grace. Here we have a father, and he is hated by both of his sons. And yet the tenderness with which he meets both in their brokenness of their lives. It should give us courage, broken as we may be, to come to such a father. No matter the ailment, no matter its depth, the prescription is the same. In some ways a pastor's job is so easy. (laughs) Don't, Don't hear that all the wrong way. But in some ways it is. We point to one. We point you consistently to Jesus Christ. That is where your eyes need to turn. The prescription is always the same. Come to Jesus. Don't wait to patch yourself up. You may and you must come to him. We see the father's incredible response in verse 31. He says, son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. You can hear the tenderness, the rage, the accusations of the older son, seems like they've, they've left no dent at all in the father's unending compassion. So meeting that just intense, that boiling anger, We looked at the Greek word, now we have this, this compassion. The father, he doesn't rise to the bait, and here again, we see is a grace that is greater than our every sin. I'd like us to see something beautiful here. In the Greek, all through the parable, we've had one common Greek word used for sun. This isn't a Greek lesson. Don't worry about it. But it's been one word, and we see it again and again, all the way through. In your English translation of this parable, wherever you saw the word sun, it's this regular word. But here in verse 31, as the father addresses his son, the father, he uses a new word. And it still means son, but more specifically, it means my child. It's a a word of endearment. It's a word of tenderness. The father, he's expressing his tender love towards his son, even when that love was entirely and utterly undeserved. Now we see the tenderness of the tone, but what is said? He says, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. The son's claims that he is being treated unfairly, utterly groundless. The father, he shows him that the door has always been opened, that he has been loved every single day of his life that he had only to enter into his father's love and so enter into the father's joy. And we see more broadly the joy of heaven. The father, he leaves the door wide open for the son even now to enter the feast, to share in the celebration of his brother's return. Now, as we've gone along this afternoon, you've seen a bit of an older brother in your hearts and your thoughts, do not miss here Jesus' invitation. Because today the door is open. That's the grace of our God. Don't wait. You may repent and come. You can be reconciled, you can enter still the joy of your Savior. It may be like the older brother, you're still wondering, well, you know what, he, that, that younger brother, he didn't deserve anything. Why did the younger son receive a celebration after all the pain that had been caused to the family? Well, Jesus, he addresses that question. We can see that in verse 32 as we're, we're wrapping things up. He says, because it was right that we should make merry and be glad. Well, why? Why? And again, it's not a Greek lesson, but the Greek, it just helps us grasp it just a little bit tighter. The word for right that's used here, it speaks of inevitability. That there was no other option. Nothing else could have happened. Why? Because returning in repentance, heaven always responds in joy. As the text says, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. We see this is always the response of heaven. Do you fight against your sin daily, but you you lose sometimes, maybe often? Come to Christ again. Here is the grace that is greater than your every sin. And notice the words that the father uses. He says, your brother. Your brother. You see the invitation in that. The father, he draws the older son back into this family that the older brother had so recently despised. Remember what he said? That son of yours? The father says, forget it. He's your brother. Why? Well, the father's love for him is still undiminished. We can look inside the house. You could hear the music, maybe the dancing. There's no question that the younger son is welcome back, right? Because it had to be this way. But we also need to see this that after all that had been said, it was still the father's desire to see the older son return with him and to enter into the house and share in the celebrations to also enter in and to also be found. Because here's the truth of the matter. All along, even while this older son, he lived under his father's roof, he's working in his father's field, he's obeying the commands of his father, the older son had been lost. How lost? Of the two sons, could it be that the older had been more lost than the younger, even though he never left home? B.B. Warfield, he gives us this quote. He says, The Father in heaven has no righteous children on earth. His grace is needed for all, and most of all, for those who dream, they have no need of it. Those who dream, they have no need of it. We have a warning here. This older brother, he, he's a bit like a church member, maybe even a model church member, who attends services faithfully week after week. Maybe he gives a tithe offering. He seems, from all appearances, to, to have it all together. He can answer every catechism question, he can sing the, the hymns, he's got the theological language. He doesn't even need this. You know, I don't need that for singing hymns. He might even lead his family in daily devotions, family worship. And and yet he has a heart that's still all too distant from God. See, here's the thing. God, he desires our hearts, not just our obedience. Coming to church week after week isn't what saves you. Coming to Christ is what does this is then a parable not about one lost son it's a parable about two and you'll notice in verse 32 You wrap this up, there's no more material that's true we aren't told what happens next did some Pharisees break down and weep before the Savior well, we don't know the parable, it ends without complete resolution it's an unfinished story And it's left unfinished for a reason. But the scribes and the Pharisees, whose hearts were distant from God, they had no hope of salvation. Their works would not buy it for them. But salvation stood in front of them in the flesh. Our Lord Jesus, as he is standing there before them, exposing their sin, but calling to them to come and be found. Do you see how compassionate this Savior is? Now see where that leaves us as we come to the end of this parable. Because it leaves us looking up from our insufficiency, our brokenness, to the perfect sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we can't save ourselves. But God has made a way. Two groups, right? And for them, and for us, salvation comes to us through the very one who is telling this parable. Christ Jesus, who came to seek and to save the lost. Who went to the cross and died for our sins. It's His perfect life that's applied to us by the Holy Spirit when we become believers. It's the Holy Spirit who continues to work in us every day. Don't hear me wrong, we want to be holy we want to obey. We want to live for our God. But we are not saved by that. We, we look to Christ. Consider the wonderful mercy of God and the exchange that takes place. Our wretched sin, we could say all of it. All that is encapsulated in these two sons and, and beyond. We have the, the pride, the self-righteousness, the discontent. Well, it's given to Jesus. And then His perfect righteousness is given to us. The cost of death for our sin becomes His. He takes that willingly. He takes that without complaint. And He dies that we may have the reward of life. The reward for His righteousness given to us. You see, it's salvation through Christ or not at all. There is no other way. And if you've come to Christ in repentance, then you are a son or a daughter of the King. Is it because you've been so great? If that was your takeaway, then we probably should just rewind this whole day and start over once again. You've missed it. No, you're a son or a daughter of the King because of immense grace, because Christ has done what you could not, because God loves to forgive, giving life to dead sons and daughters. See the lesson of our parable today. The truly repentant are always welcomed into the Father's house. The dead are made alive. The lost are found. There's an unbreakable necessity in that. No, it isn't because you are worthy, but because Jesus Christ is. For the Christian, all that we are, it all comes back to him. And for us here, the story, it's its not over either, right? And this isn't it for us. This isn't the anniversary. You're going to go on with your life. You're going to leave the pew. You've got a week ahead of you. You're going to go home. You're going to carry on with your week. And that's good. Because there's work that needs to be done. But as you go. Do not look to your own strength. Fix your eyes of faith. On Jesus. Trust the heart of this Savior. Love him with all that you are. He wants your heart as well as your obedience. Then live in thankfulness. Live in the light in the joy of this King. And may it be your joy to proclaim to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords, to, to him who is worthy, be glory now and forevermore. Amen.